Hey gang, it's Harold, and here's another podcast. I'm going to use this forum to share my thoughts about the games I play and the people I meet. We will experiment with a few things and work to find some interesting content. I look forward to your thoughts, comments, and ideas. This podcast is singularly composed of an interview with Cole Worley, the designer of John Company, PAX Premier, and Infamous Traffic and the upcoming route. We'll discuss at length the game I've become obsessed with, John Company. A place we can hide. I fall in your loving arms. Cole Worley is now a full-time game designer and developer with Leader Games in St. Paul, Minnesota. He spends his days and some nights working on the Kickstarter blockbuster Root, which raised in excess of $600,000 versus a goal of $24,000. Root has been described by insiders as coin in the forest. Cole's first published game was in 2015. PAX Pamir takes place in 19th century Afghanistan was nominated for a Golden Geek Award. He followed that with an infamous traffic which addressed the opium trade in the 19th century. The game we discuss today is his most recent publication, John Company, a multiplayer game of operations of the Honorable East Indies Company. Joko puts each player in the role of a family, operating the company and trying to maximize their family fortunes and name. This is a unique space we haven't gamed before with a massive sandbox of company operations, sprinkled liberally with graft and corruption. I've been obsessed with it since a friend delivered me a copy from its release at Essen in November. We start by asking Cole where the game came from. interesting I think there are there's a group of games that get published and I don't know enough about your own design about the history of your own design to know if your game falls in this camp but there are certain games which go from concept to full execution pretty quickly uh, and there are other games that just simmer and vex and you kind of can't get them out of your brain and then suddenly you'll forget them for a year and then they'll come back and that is very much the story of John Company uh, when I was getting ready to write a designer diary on it, I kind of was going through old notebooks and I was finding references to the East India Company game way back in 2008 and 2009. Um, it started, I think the, the first the first little inkling about it was right after I completed my undergraduate degree. I was working as a, as a basically a social worker and um, had which was a, which was a demanding and lovely job, but it also, uh, it freed my head because I didn't have to do all this reading. And so I was just sort of roving and going to the library, used book sales and buying, you know, a big bag of books and coming home and devouring them. And it was around this time that I started paying a lot of attention to the British Empire. I read um, John Key's The Honorable Company and also, you know, sort of like classics of, you know, British Empire lit uh, Gallagher and Robinson's African Victorians. And then also, uh, oh, I can't believe I'm forgetting his name. Morka, no. Mm. Uh, the person who wrote the, the White Nile, I can't believe I'm forgetting his name, but which is an amazing book about, about exploration. Uh, 
And so I was just, I was kind of, in, I was encountering the East India Company in all these ways and thinking about it. And this is around the same time as so I'm starting to think about maybe going to graduate school and I'm working kind of moonlighting as a research assistant. And one of the ways that I, as an undergrad, would try to learn something is I try to like build a little game around it. And so, you know, when I was in Byzantine history classes, I would sketch out like, what would, what would the Byzantine history game about feudal obligation and the way that they're, um, the way they're like administrative units work together to raise an army? Like, is there a game there? And it was just, it was a way of, that I could teach myself something and kind of maintain interest. Uh, and so I started doing that a little bit with, with the East India Company, but I didn't really know what I was doing. I mean, I had no experience with any kind of formal game design. I, I had written variants and things like that, but I didn't have a structure. And I also had no idea what the game would even look like. Like the topic was so large that I could, I could think about certain tensions and kind of map them out a little bit. But the more I pushed on those tensions, the whole game idea would just evolve. And then that year I discovered, and I'm using this word ironically because it's a nonsense word, but I, I discovered Republic of Rome right? Which the world had known about for 20 years. Um, and that, it, I, I don't think I recognized it. And maybe even just saying this out loud is the first time I'm kind of uh, realizing it. That was a pivotal design for me because I was at that time playing some 18xx games, a lot of uh, more of the economic, you know, container winsome games. So I was way on like not just the euro side, but like the hard spreadsheet, spreadsheet uh, strangest euros I could find. And then here was Republic of Rome, which just glittered in absurdity. I mean, it's a, it, the design is crazy. It shouldn't work. It has this massive unwieldy rule book. And every time I played it, I felt like I was taking all of the drama of a three month long D and D campaign and just compressing it into just one evening. And so the very first draft of John Company kind of looked like Republic of Rome. Uh, but I had this idea because I liked all these business and economic games that instead of build it, building it around a government, I should build it around uh, an economic engine. Um, and I, I pushed on it and I pushed on it. And then my work got very busy and I got into graduate school and I moved across the country and the game kind of fell away. And over the next several years, whenever I would have some downtime or a little extra bit of fellow, time on a fellowship, it would come back and I'd work on it. And in fact, uh, and this is something I've, I've commented elsewhere, uh, but it's, it's, it's curious enough that I think it bears repeating, which is there, there's a way of thinking about like Pamir and even infamous traffic. So a game about Afghanistan, a game about the Opium Wars games were kind of aborted attempts at doing the East India Company history. And so I was trying to figure out like, okay, how do I deal with uh, the Northwestern Front in the 1820s and 30s? Okay, well, maybe this is a whole separate game. Okay, well, that, that's going to be Pax Vermeer. And then, you know, it's kind of similar time period, but China trying to deal with the central questions of the company, but I can't quite get it all. So let's just cut off the little chunk I'm working on, and that's infamous traffic. So I really think my first three games kind of work together. Like they're in the same sort of ecosystem. They have the same kind of historiography and same political aims. Um, but so much of my design work over the last decade and kind of like my own 
um, like learning about how design works was related to this central investigation into the way the company operated. I had a similar experience with Liberty or Death with uh, the long-term development, but the model was made for me. So it, it was much easier when you have to start without a model and come up with something that's as interesting and innovative as John Company, I think it's a much greater challenge. So uh, I could see where you'd spawn off a lot of ideas and change directions many times. Well, I mean, on that note, like, I mean, Premier, which I was struggling with, and then after I played Perfuriana, I thought, oh, maybe the, the PAX, Phil Eklund's PAX engine, if we're to kind of adopt the language of video games, maybe the PAX engine is the place where I can kind of answer these questions. And then it was definitely not the, not the way that I could make a game out of the East India Company. And in fact, after Premier, the first drafts of Infamous Traffic were built in the PAX engine. I thought it was going to be, you know, like PAX, you know, Occident or Orient <laughs> or something. Um, but that it, it just plainly didn't work. And so I kind of had to start rebuilding a new engine for that. And the John, I mean, the, the trying to figure out the, the central structure for John company, that game went through so many iterations. I mean, at one point it was almost like a party game. It was this real time, just complete and in, completely insane project that almost worked. I'd always get close to it working. But it was never at a place where I could develop my way to a finished game. I always had to destroy everything and start over. Right. So that was a game. I think there were probably four major designs that had to be abandoned before I got to the one that actually worked. And I look at that, you know, your mechanism, right, which is really simple mechanics spread over a number of different jobs. So each individual job is very simple, at least most of them are. On the other hand, the, the system is very complex and planning that goes into it, in other words, the allocation of budget. And, and so I, I just I wonder how in the world you got from <laughs> Republic of Rome to Porfiriana model to this interesting and unique model, not even to mention the, the hiring and the, and the attrition that goes on. Yeah, so the, I think the thing that was so important about Perfiriana for me was that I, I did, because, so whenever I, I, whenever I moved to a place, I, I love like reading up on the local history and trying to understand why the place looks the way it does. So when I moved to Texas, I found myself reading a lot about, you know, all the usual Texas stuff, but also the weird and formal border war, which has a name that I'm forgetting right now, in the early uh, 1900s. And then, of course, about the Mexican Revolution. And I had loved Lords of the, Lords of the Sierra Madre, the second edition. And I have a copy of the first edition now, but I haven't, I haven't played it because, well, because it's, it's a giant monster of a kit. And I, I think I, it's a game that I think you need to sort of build the game to actually play it. Um, and I mean that like in the, the mechanical sense as well as the physical sense. Uh, but the second edition, I, I played a bit and it liked how it had captured a lot of the tensions of the age and especially the way that the player positions, you, you sort of felt like, um, like those rich planters and the kinds of concerns and the way they were kind of scheming. And what was so remarkable about Perfuriana is that in a fourth of the space, both on the table and in terms of the clock, the game gave you everything. It, it, it's not lighter. It's not like less tense or interesting or robust. It's all in that sort of slim formula. And so 
when I went into building the current iteration of John Company, I, I, I think I very much, and one of the reasons why after I finished it, I was like, well, of course this is going to go to Phil and Sierra Madre Games because this is absolutely in his wheelhouse. And I, I wanted to make sure that I could capture the same tension that I was feeling expressed in the letters that I were reading, that I was reading. Uh, and there, there was a book, um, which I'm going to butcher the name, but it's like the East India Company and the Maritime Trade or something. It's mostly about the Larkins family. Um, but it has wonderful, wonderful work, lots of primary uh, sources and letters just printed in full. And then it also pointed me to a lot of other archives that had letters. And so when you read those letters and the kind of anxieties people are worrying about, I wanted to try to get those anxieties inside the heads of the players. And the, so what I did in terms of setting the basic structure is in Republic of Rome originally, when I, so Republic of Rome was all about prestige and power. And when I tried to adapt the company game to that, uh, it didn't quite work. And it was because I was thinking of, I was looking at uh, Georgian England as if it were, um, as if it were, you know, like first century BC Rome. And I, all my value systems were all screwed up. And then when I did infamous traffic, I thought like, okay, the, th the, the lens that is the thing that's going to make everything matter is this social game that they're playing back home. And everything is going to be, and, and I think infamous traffic is, uh, I'm actually, I, I, I maintain some surprise at how popular infamous traffic is because I think as a game, like it's almost absurd. It is extremely brittle and extremely mean and it's so opportunistic. It's like hard to even read. I think it's, th that is as close to me for me as like a strange filler as I think we're liable to see. And because like, well, I like playing that game after a few beers and like really, uh, I think there is something kind of in just crazy about that design. And I, I really like how it turned out, but what it did uh, is it gave me my perspective because I wanted the London season and the prizes and the kind of respectability politics of 18th century England to be at the heart of the whole game. And then I, so this is a very long answer to your question about systems, but once I had that, uh, I ran into this problem, which was these people had no control over their lives. Like they could, they could scheme a little and they could think about what was going on at home and they could scheme a little in India and think a little bit and see kind of what was going on in India. But there was a whole, there was another system at work in England and there was another system at work in India and I'm, that were outside of their, of their conception, but they also had events in either sphere could turn everything upside down very, very quickly. And in part because they're losing, I mean, they're losing a good chunk of their working lives just sitting on boats and waiting for mail to arrive and pretending as if they've, you know, got, they've gotten answers that they haven't. It's amazing the confidence. I mean, I wrote my, this is my, the subject of my dissertation, which I won't bother to go into, is entirely about the confidence game of communications and how much people know when they say they know and how poor the actual communications networks were. And it, um, and it was a, it was a seasonal cycle, right? So yeah. so you you sent a ship and you didn't see it for a year. Yes. Yep. And it, because you you've got to use the trade winds, 
Right. And so you, you know, I mean, all these ships just go out to the downs, you know, this is to the west of England and they just wait for the winds to pick up and then they scoot on by and it takes them, you know, the better, the, the, the better part of three or four months, depending on what year we're talking about and certainly the weather. And then they eventually get up to India and their job may not even exist <laughs> by the time they got there. Um, so this uh, can make for uh, really interesting melodrama and uh, it can make for interesting history, but it's not the stuff that games are made of because we kind of crave some kind of strategic control. And so when I started thinking about this problem, I wanted to come up with a system. So right at the very beginning, probably the, so, uh, and I'm talking specifically now about the, the iteration of John company that was developed and got to completion, which is about a two year cycle. Um, at the start of that, I had in my mind that I wanted players to not know when they were going to score. And this, the way I tend to design things, I spend a lot of time thinking about the history, but I also, I have like, I have mechanisms or like kind of high concept formal things that I just want to poke around with. And a lot of games, especially in the, in the world of Euros, uh, you, the, the, the question is when you pivot your money making engine to your victory point making engine, which I always think is kind of a boring question. There are games that do it in interesting ways, but I kind of felt like, okay, I'm going to turn that question on its head and say, actually, you don't have control over that thing. You like It's very possible that you're going to go through the game and only get one chance to score. And you could still win the game based on that. So I had that kind of in the back of my mind. But then, and I, and I liked that because it seemed like it, it, it got to that stress about not knowing, about that distance from London that the, the people in India were feeling. And then... Over that, I spent a lot of time with a book, um, which I list in, in, in the credits, and it's unfortunately very expensive. But it, um, the East India in the like Indian Ocean, like the East India, the British East India Company in the Indian Ocean trade history, it has a, it has one of those long academic titles that characterized a lot of lots of books from the 1970s. Anyway, this book was critical for me because what he did. Um, I believe it was an Indian uh, scholar. So he went into the East India archive and he said, I'm going to read everything and we're going to put it in a database and we're just going to try to understand how much the, like, let, let me start that backwards in a little, a slightly different way to, to uh, explain like the real brilliance of his innovation. So he realized the East India company took very good records, uh, but the records were too good. And so it was actually impossible for, given the uh, the these synthesis constraints and the constraints on like actually moving the documents around, it was impossible for the East India Company to use the data that it was nonetheless gathering. So this kind of strange thing happened where the the archives just explode. There's just so much documentation. The company didn't like wasn't able to use it very effectively, but. If you look at if you look at it, you can get a very full picture of what the company's trade looked like. And so we, you know, there's this weird thing where, in a lot of critical ways, we know more about 18th century trade in India than 19th century trade in India 
because of this archive, I mean, in the way that history sometimes rolls backwards and forwards and all sorts of strange directions. So he, he, he synthesizes that and he puts it, this is kind of like a first generation big data project in the humanities. And then to that, he also spent a lot of time talking about the way the company made its decisions. And when I was reading this, it occurred to me that one of the problems I was having with coming up with a system for this game is I was treating the company like it was hegemonic. And this is something that vexes, I think, a lot of young scholars working on the British Empire. When you're an undergrad, you get the kind of like Edward Said, oh, the British Empire, they're very evil. And they're also racist, but they're racist in interesting ways, and we'll talk about those ways. And none of those things are wrong, but the East India, the East India Company was complicated. And there were good actors and bad actors, and even thinking about them in those terms doesn't really begin to take you through the different countervailing forces that are determining policy. I mean, when I used to teach this to undergrads, they would always be stunned by how much the when we would do um, the trial of Warren Hastings and talk about Burke, they were stunned by the empire's rebuke of the company. Uh, I mean, they really had a hard time managing this thing. And I started forming uh, or I started adopting an argument that there were these different factions working within the company and that it's that infighting and specific, well, not, not just infighting, but it was the, the, the military industrial complex, the 18th century version of it. It was that faction becoming unchecked, which eventually led to the explosion of the company and then its collapse. And so... I had, like when I was trying to figure out the, the system for John Company, on one hand, I had this sort of game theory, like formal thing that I wanted about loss of control. But on the other hand, I had a, a, a new understanding of why the company was hard to understand. And it was useful for the purposes of making a game because the reasons it was hard to understand is because of all of these uh, competing forces in a multi lateral conflict, which board games are really, really, really good at. And to go back to Porfiriana, one of the fantastic things about that was that the target moved and you could control the movement of the target and, and you could choose which side you were on uh, dynamically. Now, <clears throat> while, while, you know, that, that doesn't, isn't a perfect analog to what you're doing with John company, one of the things I love about John Company in that context is that there are strategies to win if uh, the company's successful, but there are also strategies to win if the company fails. Not to mention, you know, all the negotiation in between. So, you know, I'm kind of interested in how you got over the hurdle of setting players up to succeed in the company, right? Because it, a lot of the banter that I see now are people saying, we, we worked together and made the company win, you know, company successful. Mm -hmm. Which, which I think is great, right? And if, if they get joy out of the game in that context, but as I sit back and watch the game, I'm continually saying, well, well I, can I win if I destroy this? Mm -hmm. How do you make that transition? I'm, I, I assume there was a transition to that at some point. Well, it, it started in the current iteration. Uh, I definitely wanted there to always be a winner. I didn't want an all-lose situation. And in fact, that's one of the reasons why when you're rolling for your setup positions, uh, you can roll manners. Uh, one of my favorite starts in the game is where you just 
put all of your starting cubes into the manors by accident. And you're kind of playing this grumpy old money position where you just sort of want the company to go away right away because it's this engine of upward mobility. Uh, and, and I, so I, from the very beginning, I wanted, I wanted the players to, I'm really interested in different kinds of emergent partnerships and games. I think that's why I love the coin system so much. Um, I, I like it. I, I like that moment where you, your natural ally abandons you. And when you have to find, when you have to do really uncomfortable and strange things that become political necessities. Um, but in terms of figuring out, um, in terms of figuring out the, the moment when it, okay. When it comes to understanding the victory in the game, once I had it as a metric of respectability and that alone, it suddenly allowed all of these different situations to be completely uh, – um, I'm, I'm trying to think of the right way to put it. <laughs> I'm trying to – I've been thinking through this. So I want to write something so I can sort my, my thoughts about it. When, when you're working in design, there's a place that I get to uh, – this happened with every project I've worked on – where the rules are robust enough, like the system is robust enough that you can introduce an idea and it requires like a sentence to have its effect. Because the rest of the game supports it. And there was a time as I was building the, the, the game when I was when I first started, I said, okay, so when I'm designing the system, I'm gonna think about how does the company operate? And I'm gonna kind of imagine all the different jobs and the different ways the bureaucracy works. And now once I've got that, I'm going to atomize it and allow players to jockey over the different positions. And that's where the so, I mean, I sort of built like a, this is one of the weird things about the solo game. I hadn't planned on including a solo game at all, but then someone asked me, could you play it solo? And I thought, you know, when I was first designing the game, I essentially, because I just wanted to make sure the company could behave like the company. And so I was playing it just the company and not really worrying about the families at all, just to make sure it could work. And I think the solo game is fine. I don't, I don't know what necessarily what people get from solo games because I've, I, it's, it's, it's different from the reasons I play games, but I think that I wanted to make sure the company had interesting choices to make that were outside of the positions of the players. And then when you put in the players, the way the company can grow in shape will create lots of factions with a lot of overlap so that you never, I mean, it never happens in John Company that it's like a two versus two. And those sorts of things will sometimes happen in political games. Uh, I mean, certain coin games are more susceptible than, than others. Um, I think about like Dune, uh, which uh, Dune for all of its for all of its betrayal, uh, Dune is a game where I sometimes find I have a friend in the first turn, and six turns later, like we are still friends and we are still fighting this thing. Um, but I, so I I wanted that not to happen. I wanted there to be lots of le points of leverage that players could kind of wield over one another, um, and. When I, I think there's an interesting, it's been interesting to watch people's reports and just kind of like have just a little eye on the conversation people have had about the game. Because I found with my playtesters that when people started playing John Company, their very first games, they were uh, pretty generous to the company. And then as soon as somebody would be mean and tear things down and make a lot of money and then maybe win a game, uh, they would trash the company without even thinking about it. 
And so actually, so th- there was a funny little valley where, where the company would get very bad. Uh, and, w- w- you know, it was failing almost every game. Uh, and then once players got better, usually there's only one player who wants to destroy the company, or there should only be one. Um, and when that happens, the company then starts doing pretty well and will start engaging in the weird uh, sort of betting, like the, the weird risk management game of thinking about how any is going to behave and then, you know, moving ships around and doing really dynamic things, which is what, you know, historically the company actually did. Um, and so I, I find personally that my favorite games of John Company in the early company scenario are actually the ones where people understand the potential of what the company could offer them and they don't just steal as much as they can and then there's usually one great heist uh which is my, my, that's my favorite moment where you're like ah and because i'm the only one with shares in the company i will pay out the entire treasury <laughs> and you know it's like it, it, so there'll be a few coups like that um right or or a uh, a governor right that, that mm-hmm. says thank you for the taxes we'll take it all yeah right. take every, my, fam- every penny. my family will take every penny yes <laughs> Right. No, that's, you know, it's interesting too. The solo players, while I don't play much solo, there are certainly many people that enjoy it. And so it's great to provide it to to quench their thirst and their interest because of their choice. But then, you know, it's also good for people that have never, uh, never played the game to get through the mechanics. And for me, if I ever play solo, it's always in God mode. I kind of Mm-hmm. Play. I would play with three or four families, but you know the the gem that's buried in this uh, is the negotiation. And I describe the game frequently to people as a very simple series of mechanisms that are very easily executable. Because it, at each point, the decisions you have to make are limited. Right. I mean, at mm-hmm. any point in time, a person has to make a, a relatively small number of choices. But the way it sets up, we played. A six-player game in two and a half hours. You know the the early scenario um, this past week with an, with you know two new players and four very experienced players, and the time was all spent on this. Uh, you know I don't trust you. I'm not going to put you in that job. Or what's it worth to you? Right? The, those sorts of uh, outs. Just the the negotiations that that I love to see in a game. And this and this game it just sets that up perfectly. Yeah, the I someone described the game to me the other day as um, a negotiation game for people who don't normally like negotiation games, um, and I think it it uh, w- which is funny because I've used that description to talk about another game which I quite admire um, called Genoa or Traders of uh, Genoa, Genoa, whatever. Uh, and one of the things that, that's good about both of those games is that they are uh, good about that game is that it provides players with this kind of like language to interact with the game so that sometimes when people think about negotiation games, they think about that game of risk that went six hours. Uh, and risk isn't, isn't a negotiation game or I don't think it should be. It, it isn't, it isn't built for it. Um, and when we were doing John company, I wanted, I mean, a- actually the, the inclusion of negotiation in John company and w- which eventually became its central feature. Like it is a game about, value and about leverage and when it started I, I mean i went through some really strange versions of it i had a version with these letter cards that you could send players and you could only talk to people through the letter cards and it, it kind of worked but it i mean it was it just it was one of those things that it was cute and for the first 20 minutes and then frustrating for the next three hours um and 
I wanted, I just, I wanted to really, I wanted the game to allow players a lot of creativity and how to use the leverage because there's so many points of, of power. And I, I, one of the things I really like about watching games of John Company, sometimes I'll see it played at a, like a con or something and I'll just sit there and watch it. Um, people come up with the craziest things to negotiate about. And, and, and I don't mean that in, in a bad way. It's just the, what thing i think there, there's a lot of different things that you can that you can put that you can put a value on and the game doesn't the, the, the game doesn't really uh have show too much preference in terms of the kind of thing that, that you're uh that, that you're valuing i mean i one of one of my favorite plays of john company um just saw a player uh who cashed out a lot who had a, got a lot of money very early just become a bank and all of the negotiation that was going on was, I mean, they were essentially arguing about interest rates. And the uh, in earlier drafts of the game, there was a system where uh, deals were wholly binding, completely 100% binding. Um, and I really liked it and wanted to keep it. But the players were getting so crafty and clever about their deals that like I had a group that was like writing contracts that was like they were they'd write down little notes with terms and escape clauses, and especially as I started developing, uh, because I I wanted I knew early that uh, although a lot of the focus of the game is on the kind of early eighteenth century, I really wanted to have people do the post uh, the the post monopoly stuff, and I actually think it's the reason why my favorite scenario is. Um, the 1815 or the full campaign because I love the inside the company, outside the company tension. And I wanted people to do that, but uh, everyone was being such a shark about their contracts that I couldn't, I just simply couldn't have a rule that said contracts are binding because there was no game mechanism to enforce it. And then I was talking with my playtesters one night and we had a very long chat about Bonanza, which is a game that we Everybody, kind of everybody in the playlist crew loves Bonanza. Um, and in Bonanza, there is this when you, when you play Bonanza, uh, you are the game asks you to do things that you don't want to do, and so you try to sell those things to other players. But you don't really have a currency, and so in Bonanza, and I, this is funny because it's not in the rules, but I, every group I've played has a similar word for it. So you're kind of saying like, "Well, I owe you a small favor, or maybe it's a big favor." They'll usually use a size metaphor. It's a huge favor. Like maybe like three small favors is equal to a huge favor. But I, I see, I saw that currency in almost every group I played Bonanza with. And so I said, okay, John Company has this problem where uh, the game can run out of money like very quickly. Players can spend thinking that it's going to rain forever and then it's gone. And I didn't, it, when that happens in other negotiation games, the currency uh, the, the game just dies. And when I was thinking about that, I thought, okay, what if players can promise something in the future, something that, that that's kind of like a little contract, but then because you give players a control of how much of it they can offer, small, big, you know, huge, whatever, um, then they can start, they can mortgage their own positions basically. Um, and so that's how, I mean, that that's exactly where, where the promise cubes came from. And, it was uh, when we first started playing with them. I mean, it, all these things about the design which weren't quite right just instantly clicked into place. And then 
I was extra delighted because when we started testing the later company scenarios that had in things like shareholding, the promise cubes re- worked even better because you could you could you could offer you could essentially if if somebody had ready money, you know, they could lend and then eventually have like leverage over a small company where like, oh, you know, that company I gave you all that money to buy 30, 30% of Harold's company. Uh, and you've given me like half of your cubes and you, there's no way you're gonna be able to pay me back. So I want, uh, I don't want to hurt your victory points, but I do want your 30% share of Harold's company. And it just, all these things opened up that had, that had been kind of, the doors were like quite not, uh, not quite unjammed. Uh, and in the last stage of the, of the development of this game was so smooth and it was entirely because we had found a currency that the players could negotiate. Uh, a mark of a good negotiation game is that usually you do honor your promises. Because the interesting thing about the negotiation game is not betrayal. It's, it's leverage. Uh, and I think that, I think that too, like, uh, diplomacy sometimes gets a fair shake because when you look at really good diplomacy players, there's only going to be one backstab the entire game. There are a lot of little promises that get they get broken and miscommunications and that kind of stuff. But it's this like complicated dance of leverage that's going on. And like that's where the game is living and thriving. And I think sometimes uh, negotiation games get a bad rap because they don't want to make their friends hate each other. And it's like, no, it's it's about being put in these uncomfortable positions where you need things from players the uh yeah the challenge for me with diplomacy is playing it with the same guys over and over i just get tired of lying to my to yes. my friends but the game is brilliant and i absolutely agree you're we're gonna have to do this again because i have so much to talk about uh, related to the other games that you've worked on and are, and are working on but one last point on uh john company and i wanted to talk a little bit about the elephant and it's uh its awkward path uh, through the regions and path of usually destruction. You know, understand a little bit about how you came up with that concept. So originally, John Company, I imagined it was going to be in a small box. And one of the nice things about working with Phil, and when I think about my own learning how to design, and one of the things that Phil gave me uh, as a mentor was a production constraint. You know, Phil, especially when I gave him Pamir, uh, Sierra Madre was doing well, but it hadn't hadn't broken through the way it has broken through now. And so the, the, the design had to fit in a small box that was under a kilogram that he could mail from his local post office in Germany for five euros to anywhere in the world. So like his whole business model is built around a postage rate. And that's that's nonsensical, but also it is a great pressure for a young designer trying to think through problems. So when I first thought about John Company, I imagined, you know, I think in this box, I'm going to need more cubes than usual. Um, but, and this is before the game had a board, uh, I think I'm going to have to do the whole thing in 60 cards. And so I'm like, okay, well, every office is going to be a card. So let's say there's, you know, 12 or 15 offices, depending on how you want to count things like the governor general. Okay. So that's a bunch. All right. Now I want like 20, you know, maybe 15, 20 prizes. Like, okay, now we're up to 35, 40 cards. And then I, every player needs a card. And so I'm like, okay, I've got 12 cards. I think I had about 12 cards left. And I need some way to do events in India in 12 cards. And so it led me to 
kind of pull a bunch of games off the shelf to go to the my local game store has a big wargaming library and to just think about how they did events and so i thought okay maybe event tables i need a big event table and I, I hadn't played time of crisis at that point but i was looking at kind of similar things and the more i started learning about the way games do events the more unhappy i was becoming with them because they so there are, there are a couple different things that happen. Like the classic event deck, which is now in every kind of Ameritrash title that, that comes around, um, and also in many war games where you just kind of flip a card and something happens, it those things make a game impossible to balance. So the events tend to be really boring and small because you don't you don't want everything to, to turn up. Because, you know you can't you can't predict it. And Republic of Rome is a little clever here because you, you know, the, you, the first Punic War comes out and that's a little bit of a problem, but it's when that second one comes out and the third one. So you're kind of like playing for these little straights and stuff and, you know, the multipliers, the leaders. Uh, so I, I liked that a little bit, but, uh, the problem with Republic of Rome's system is that, uh, the event systems are usually built around things happening to one thing. So, you know, we've got Rome, and then we've got these various things that can happen to Rome. But especially in the early years of the company, the company wasn't big and important enough to think about events in that way. Like, the company was of no consequence. It, wouldn't, it would have been very, I think, silly for me to write a big event deck that was things that could happen to the company. Because... I, I think it, I didn't want to make the company self-important um, because it wasn't, and it was it was a weird small player that eventually became a big player on the subcontinent. So uh, I, I I wrote these a group of little uh, little pieces of writing, kind of about my dissatisfaction with events, but I I knew that I needed them because I needed some engine of chaos in the game, uh, and so what I decided to do. And I kind of went back to my production limitation and thought, okay, well, none of this is going to help me. Like maybe I'm like thinking about pandemic, but pandemic, I, I kind of like how the way how things spread in pandemic feels very organic. Um, but you need a big deck of cards to be able to do that. And I had 12. And so somewhat arbitrarily, I went through and said, what if I were to divide India into a number of regions? And you know, so I'm, I was doing some pro, like programming at the time, and I kind of just was thinking about it as like a modeling problem. Like, okay, we have these regions, and they have these three attributes. So regions can be, uh, they can be affiliated with the British Empire and tra open for trade, or they can be closed. Um, they could be depressed, or they can be prosperous. And depression is usually a natural disaster in the context of the game, uh, often famine. Um, or, or some kind of internal strife that's caused the state to, to kind of dissolve temporarily. And then lastly, uh, they could be arranged as either politically, they could either be sovereign or they could be dominated by another region. And those statuses came based on reading some histories of Mughal India and just sort of trying to think about the different ways that the regions could be aligned. And then I thought, okay, well, uh, 10 regions is probably a little too much. And I'd sure like to include some player aid cards. So let's go down to eight. <laughs> um, and, and I mean, it, it was, it was that arbitrary because I could certainly divide India up into eight or 12 or 24 states. Um, I mean, it's massive. So 
uh, and I, and eight was very cute because I, I love the eight sided die. Um, I think it's a very nice, it's a very nice number of sides for a dice and it creates, they're interesting, beautiful numbers in it. Um, and so I thought, okay, this is be- this is perfect. I have an eight sided die. You roll the die and then an event happens there. And the event is going to depend on the status of that, of, of that state. And then also that event can change the statuses of the other states. So you can get these cascades. And what I tried to do is originally was I kind of just I thought about the histories I had read and tried to just think about the different things that could happen. And then I built these little event tables. And at my first draft, uh, India would sometimes behave in a way that made sense, but it was such a wide range that it was more often nonsensical. And that was not good. And I was on the very edge of scrapping the whole system. When it occurred to me that if you had a single piece, and this is the elephant from the game, that marched from region one to region two, uh, it it would enable the players to predict where the elephant was going to be. Because my problem actually wasn't that India was doing crazy things. That's fine. History is wild. The world that we are in is not the world that we had to be in. Um, My problem was that players couldn't see it coming. And... That is my core problem with the event deck as it's in games traditionally. And so I wanted players to be able to kind of see its movement. And so putting that elephant in and saying, like, look, if Region 2 had an event, next event's definitely going to be in Region 3, and then maybe 4, then maybe 5. It was still a little hard to predict. Uh, So then that began a phase of the design where, and through the aid of a lot of software, I was able to really tweak the model and there was a balance between making it too chaotic too hard to predict and or too easy to predict and this is where a lot of the concepts like the elephant redirects came from so like when a revolt happens in some region it's likely to spread to another region this also gave me ways of the elephant kind of like bumping and skipping out of order which created uh rare uh system failure type events where everything seems okay, and then because one thing happens, there's a little domino effect. And that that stuff happened a lot in Indian history. It was extremely chaotic. And also, I thought, nicely gave a bit of a um, kind of buffer between what the players knew and understood and what they were looking at. Uh, but I also didn't want to lose the calculability of the, what the elephant might do, which is where the tilts came back in. Uh, because depending on the way India is tilted, you know a lot about what's going to happen. Right. Yeah, and I also like that you can, you know, with with a good conquest or invest, you can also control it to some degree. Cole, as I said, I, a thousand things to talk about, but I'm I'm going to move off of uh, John Company here. Let's move to the uh, more informal. Uh, what, sure. what What have you been doing, if you don't mind? So um, <laughs> maybe we start off with uh, what What have you been watching, movies, TV wise? Uh, so. Uh, my wife and I have been just watching a lot of old movies lately. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, have, we have a Filmstruck account, which is the Turner Classic Movies um, Criterion channel. And we have lately been on a Powell and Pressburger kick. I just watched a movie I had never seen before, uh, never even heard of, called A Matter of Life and Death, mm-hmm. which blew me away. It's a British film from the 40s. And in its humor and in the way it's filmed, it looks like it could have come out a decade ago. Like it's so crisp 
and funny uh, and lovely. And then we watched uh, Black Narcissus, which uh, I didn't know anything about before we watched. So what's been so nice about this is because it's such a curated collection, we'll more or less just pick a director and just start going through all of their stuff. And you watch a movie, in so many of these old movies, you know, you, you kind of expect them to have sort of stolid, like, you know, they're going to fall in love. It'll be over. Everyone will be fine. But, boy, they are hard to predict, and they go all over the place, and they're much more interesting than I would have ever imagined them. And so Black Narcissus, actually, which is completely fabulous, is about uh, – a. I think it was actually – that movie came out right at the end of the British Empire, maybe like months before the the end of the rule in India. Wow. And it's about these nuns establishing a monastery in uh, close to somewhere uh, close to Darjeeling. And you sort of never know what the movie is actually about going all the way through it. <laughs> there are moments where you think you're getting ready to watch The King and I. And they're kind of like silly and they're all about like teaching the natives and Western ways and they're dancing. And then suddenly there's this weird subversive romantic elements coming in. And then it kind of turns into a thriller, which is every bit as scary as any Hitchcock movie I've ever watched. Uh, and like up in every single moment, all the way to the end of the movie, I had no idea when the film was going to stop uh, and, and quite and quite enjoyed it. Uh, a lot of good reference material there for uh, future viewing and, and searching. What about books? What uh, what, what are you reading now? Uh, so I'm always, I'm always reading a few things. Um, let's see. I'm reading uh, an interesting book, which I think probably deserves more notice, called The Moore's Account uh, by Lalia uh, uh, La Lamali, uh, an African author. And it is about um, Spanish conquistadors and a slave they have with them, a Moor. Uh, landing in the new world and kind of going on a, a, a sort of a, a Cortez style um, uh, exploration conquest. But the novel is told from the perspective of the Moorish slave and is very good and very wow. interesting. And then I'm also, I'm reading uh, Chernow's biography of Grant, um, which is incredible. I, yes. it's, it, it is so like usually I'll read history before bed because I'll just I'll fall asleep, and it, it, it's just because they're dense and it's a, it's a nice way to kind of drift off, and it's an absolute page turner. <laughs> and yeah. I can't like I it's it, like it I, I actually can't I, it's not even in the bedroom anymore because I know it's going to keep me up. And then the other thing that I'll mention um, it, that I, I think would be of interest to a lot of people is I'm reading uh, T. H. White who uh, wrote the Once and Future King. He also wrote a book about living in the English countryside called England Have My Bones. And it is just a bunch of little essays about him living in a cottage in kind of the middle of England. Hmm. Uh, and they are so delightful. And they're, you know, you'll read one and it'll be about like the proper techniques for catching a snake. And then the <laughs> next essay will be this beautiful meditation on flight. And then the next one is like, oh, I'm going hunting with this guy that I really hate because he's kind of a racist. And and so you you absolutely <laughs> when you open up the daily entry, you never know what you're going to get. But some of the best writing I have read recently has been lodged in that book in odd places. And I think especially for people who like um, that kind of like sportsman in like the mid 20th century sense, those sort of like sportsman memoirs, it is wonderful. And it's not the kind of book I normally read, but I picked it up randomly to use bookstore and I've been, I've been reading just a single entry every day because I want to, I'm trying to savor it. 
it, you know, it sounds like a nice light balance to a couple of heavy choices that you've opened <laughs> with. So, so that's good to hear. So what about music? What do you listen to uh, in the car or otherwise? I, I listen to a lot of music lately. Uh, we're, I'm in the final uh, stages of doing the pre-press work on Root. This is the, the, the perils of doing your own graphic design. Uh, because it's exhausting <laughs> and it's very, uh, you kind of can't do anything else. You can only barely listen to music while you do it. But I listen lately because I've been spending all my day like sorting through files and setting things off. Uh, I've been just burning through albums. Um, I'm a, this is going to be, I'm going to give three recommendations which are going to demonstrate that, uh, I will potentially have no friends when it comes to music. Um, so I lately have been listening to, uh, some pop music and, some British pop music, something that's called PC pop, which is highly, highly produced. Um, and I've been listening to Charlie XCX, her album pop two, which for people who liked what Kanye West was doing on 808s and heartbreak, it's very kind of bluesy, like auto tune to make you sound more robotic and kind of out of tune. I'm sorry, harmonica. I, I think it's fabulous. And I mean, I love, I love West's work in all of its forms. Um, and then on that note, I, Thinking about that led me to re-listen through all of Kanye's work, and then that led me to um, giving Life of Pablo, which came out a couple of years ago, just another fulsome listen, and being just overwhelmed by the beauty and the technical proficiency of that album. I mean, I, I love rap and hip-hop, love it. Um, and funnily, I uh, used to despise it growing up. I never liked uh, hip-hop at all. Uh, but it was always, I think there was like, a you know, I grew up... Um, and, it, and it, like, I, I didn't want to identify it growing up. And I suspect it was a lot of, of privilege and latent racism because there were people at my high school who listened to rap music. I didn't want to be associated with them. And there were people who listened to country music. I didn't want to be associated with them. And it wasn't until I actually started learning, reading a lot of poetry in graduate school that I would listen to something by Kendrick Lamar and just be blown away by the metrical intricacy of it. Uh, and it's just stunning. Um, and then finally... Um, I have been listening. Um, I can't believe I'm, for, I'm gonna forget her name right now. It's just exiting my brain. Uh, oh, Lucy Dacus. Um, Lucy Dacus is a, a kind of folksy indie singer. Uh, she has a new album out that is really wonderful and um, just kind of beautiful songwriting and the, the kind of like three or four minute song range. Um, Simple, self-contained, uh, but just a great voice, great production, a little lo-fi. I really enjoy it. Well, we, we hope to see that reflected in Root uh, when, it's, <laughs> yes. when it's produced. Um, you know, Volko was saying that he likes to immerse himself with music's, music of the period. Uh, and he even, he even mentioned food of the period, which I thought was uh, was funny. And, wow. And so, so when you talk about uh, music and food of the forest, uh, you know, that can be, it can get... Uh, <laughs> kind of nutty it, it took me i we used to have a tradition in the house that i lived in in college where every winter we would kind of informally pick a thing that no one knew anything about and then just go as deeply into as we could so one winter we all brought bought season tickets to the indiana opera which is had a very good uh, music school and so we saw a bunch of operas and learned everything we could about opera and uh another year we did classic hip-hop and it it blew me away i just i didn't I wasn't meeting the genre halfway. <laughs> and I think when I, you know, in the same way, like when you read, so like sometimes I'll, when I would, I, I, I've taught hip hop a lot uh, too. It's a, it's, a, it's a good text. 
um, for, because students have strong feelings about it. And, uh, and it, you know, I've never done like history of hip hop. That's not my expertise. I would never do that, but I, I would use it in little ways. And, uh, one of the things that, uh, I liked about it is how well, like when you read like a, when you read a sonnet, um, a kind of an English Renaissance sonnet, of, you're going to get the kind of usual objectification and you're also going to get the poet bragging a lot about how great they are. And these are, these are elements that oftentimes turn uh, otherwise interested listeners off of hip hop. But when you listen to it carefully, so much of what makes it so good is the way that it plays with convention. And, um, and I, I think in this particular way, like Kanye West's work is unbelievable because it is so sophisticated and it, I think that um, the way that he has allowed himself to become a caricature is an excellent, it's almost, I mean, it reminds me of something like Warhol or, you know, or like David Bowie. It's just so like people can't separate out the creator and the image that the creator projects forward. Um, But the the actual body of work is as robust and interesting as, you know, anything else that he's produced. and it's been really, it's been really fun. You know, usually when I work on a big project where I know I'm going to need to sit in front of my computer for six hours, I will usually pick an artist and I'll just go through their whole discography a couple times. And lately, it's been West, and it it has held up just wonderfully. Sure. Uh, let's see. Right. I just got a box in the mail from Holland Spiel with a copy of Hood's Last Gamble, and which is a John Thiessen operational design on, um, I guess, the Nashville campaign. I don't really know what to talk about. The one with uh, George Thomas and Hood. Um, and then also a copy of Table Battles, which I uh, which I just learned how to play last night. I uh, I'm I'm fortunate to have a job that lets me play games as much as I want to play them, um, and so we we try. I mean, right now because it's crunch time, we don't get to play as much as we want. Um, but in terms of my own tastes, uh, I will play most anything. Um, not more than once. You know, I, I'm pretty good about. It. I'll give anything one shot, but I usually won't bring it back to the table. Uh, games that I've played recently that I really so I love in terms of war games. I love operational games. That is my favorite genre by far, by a massive margin, because I feel like no other genre better puts me in the position of a single person. And I, so I really, uh, I really enjoy um, Kevin Zucker's Napoleonic's games. And actually, I, I just learned, I was on way behind my email, I just learned about Voco's new game while I was listening to your podcast. I like, had missed that GMT update. 
And so suddenly he was talking about a medieval operational game. And I said, oh, I've got to run and get my P500. <laughs> because it's, I just think it's a great format. Um, so I, I, really, I really admire operational war games. Um, outside of that, uh, I, I play a lot of 18xx games, uh, kind of weird, old, uh, mean Euros. Um, uh, a game that I have been bringing with me, this isn't recent news, but something I love to, I think it's become like a bit of a, a thing that I'm getting known for at cons I go to. I will always bring a copy of the old Milton Bradley game, Conspiracy, because it is excellent. And it is such a strange spatial auctioning game with so much room for just creative play. And when I when I take it out, people just, I love the stunned look on their face as I put all these plastic busts out on the table and they think that we're about to do something very silly. And then the experienced players at the table will pummel them into the ground and they'll ask to play again. And suddenly we'll, we'll, a whole night we'll have played six rounds of it. Um, so those sorts of discoveries, uh, those are my favorite things. It's one of the reasons why I love um, going to BGGCon so much because they've got that big library. And oftentimes we'll run to the library and find things that we've never heard of and go out and learn them. And sometimes you find gems and sometimes they're not so good. Yeah, that's great. That's fun. Cole, uh, I want to thank you for taking the time and giving me such a thoughtful response to the questions about John Company. It's a classic, an instant classic, and a very interesting look at a space that we don't game and haven't gamed in the past. And I just, I love the sandbox. So I want to thank you for that. Thanks for taking the time. And we have so much more to talk about. So I hope to, to grab you another time and, and get into more depth. I would very much love that, Harold. It, you know, I'm sure you know this feeling. John Company was completely a labor of love. It was something that I had no idea. I couldn't imagine the people I was making it for. And it has meant so much that it has found an audience. like to watch games. Play fair. Then everyone can have more fun. Play just for yourself. Try to be the star. Good sportsmanship pays. And the crowd likes it. It'd be easy for them to be angry. Too bad. I fall in your loving arms with a So that's a wrap for my second podcast. I'll publish some notes and references on my website conflictsimulations.com Thanks to the San Diego-based band Roman Watchdogs for their intro and outro music. Check them out on romanwatchdogs.com Additional musical credits go to Fanny Isabella for her cover of Heartless by Kanye West. Do me a favor of sharing the podcast with a few friends and rating it a 5 on iTunes. That will help me get the word out. Leave me a comment on BoardGameGeek with your thoughts and ideas. I will close with a special thanks to Cole Worley, 
And that's it for me. As always, I'm playing fair so that everyone can have more fun, and I'll be back soon.